Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The very determined defense of Mifflin and of Mercer uh, uh, were indicative of the, uh, uh, of the grit, you know, the sacrificial determination and the inventiveness of America's patriots. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Rand Moranti talking about Fort Mifflin on the Delaware River. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones, available wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Rand Moranti, talking about one of my favorite Revolutionary War sites, Fort Mifflin on the Delaware River outside of Philadelphia. There are a lot of places you can visit. Battlefields, historic sites that take your breath away. Uh, Places you can still see it and feel it in more ways than one. And Fort Mifflin's one of those places. It's a really interesting fort, well-positioned, and of course still positioned, in a really strategic area outside of Philadelphia. Uh, It was a critical American outpost uh, and defensive structure during the uh, British occupation of the city. Really powerful place, and used into the 20th century, used through World War II. It's also really unique in that it's one of these places where the old world and the modern world come together because it sits literally uh, just off of the runway at Philadelphia's International Airport. I used to host a television series on the Pennsylvania Cable Network called Battlefield Pennsylvania where we would visit these sites live uh, and discuss the battles with experts on location And it was by far the most challenging place to film we've been to because airplanes would fly overhead every two minutes. Anyway, this will be a much more peaceful experience for you listening to Rand talk about it. Uh, His article is very good. Please check it out at www.allthingsliberty.com. Without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Rand Moranti. Rand Moranti, thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks very much for having me on board, Brady. Tell us about your background. Sure. For a number of years, uh, I practiced law primarily as uh, in-house counsel for uh, McGraw-Hill, uh, the New York City-based publishing and information company. Uh, and then uh, during the 1990s, I made a, a phased-in career change over to working for my uh, alma mater, uh, Princeton University, uh, in its uh, development office or if you put it more directly and transparently uh, in fundraising, and I continue to do that for them. Uh, It had the uh, uh, excellent side benefit of cutting what had been a uh, over a three-hour daily round-trip commute in and out of New York to uh, roughly 20 minutes. Uh, uh, While I've been at Princeton uh, for five uh, non-consecutive fall semesters, 
uh, I taught a course on treason in the uh, university's freshman writing program. And uh, that's a topic which uh, hopefully hasn't inspired any of my former students to uh, take a career path in the uh, footsteps of Princeton alum uh, Aaron Burr. I should mention that one component of my treason course uh, considered Benedict Arnold as seen through the somewhat varying perspectives of uh, Federalist Chief Justice John Marshall in his uh, biography of George Washington and of the uh, Jeffersonian Republican Mercy Otis Warren in her monumental work, uh, Rise, Progress, and Termination of the American Revolution. And uh, maybe there's a future JA article uh, on that subject uh, for me. Uh, I've also been a speaker and a tour host on uh, alumni trips uh, on the St. Lawrence, the Danube, and the Elba Rivers and to uh, Normandy. And I've spoken on topics ranging from uh, the fall of New France to the Berlin Airlift. I've also uh, given quite a few lectures and tours of the Princeton battlefield for Princeton alumni uh, for three on-campus conferences of uh, judges and for the uh, descendants of uh, George Washington, among uh, a number of other groups. And I can uh, attest that it's every former attorney's nightmare to be on your feet in front of 70 judges at once. Uh, finally, this coming January, I've been asked to uh, deliver for Princeton students a set of uh, Zoom-based uh, distance learning lectures on the 1776-77 campaign in New Jersey. And uh, that, of course, culminated on the Princeton campus at Nassau Hall. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, going way back, as I'm sure is the case with uh, many in your audience, uh, and perhaps yourself, my uh, interest in visiting historic sites you know, really started at a young age on family trips to places like Fort Ticonderoga, West Point, Yorktown, and Williamsburg, along with uh, a number of the iconic Civil War battlefields. Uh, after I first wrote an article for JAR about the adventures of, or maybe misadventures of a uh, Philadelphia militia artillery officer named uh, Joseph Mulder at the Battle of Princeton, uh, it occurred to me to write a, an impressionistic piece and something of a quasi-visitor's guide about Fort Mercer on the New Jersey side of the Delaware. I think I'd seen some other JAR authors submit something similar on the Yorktown battlefield. Uh, and my Fort Mercer article appeared in 2018. And from there, it just naturally followed for me to work on a companion article on Mercer's complimentary uh, Pennsylvania side bastion, uh, Fort Mifflin. Could you talk a little bit about the geographic importance, maybe the, the background situation of Fort Mifflin? Yes, uh, Fort Mifflin, uh, uh, which was also referred to by its uh, quite appropriate original name, Fort Mudd, was part of an interconnected uh, system aimed at uh, protecting Philadelphia from an attack on the city from the south up the Delaware River. Uh, so it was uh, situated on Mud Island, and that piece of geography no longer exists as such. But at the time, it was close to the Pennsylvania shore, uh, just south of where the Schuylkill River, uh, River meets the Delaware, uh, and below the old Philadelphia Navy Yard, which you pass as you're going southbound over the Gerard Point Bridge on I-95. And uh, directly across from uh, uh, Fort Mifflin uh, or Fort Mudd on the New Jersey side 
on uh, bluffs that overlook the Delaware River. And uh, there's about a mile and a half uh, uh, within the river at that point was a uh, sister fortification, uh, Fort Mercer. And the, uh, the defense of these two forts, the defense of Philadelphia, was uh, greatly strengthened by the positioning of a, a series of rows of iron-tipped stakes known as chevaux de frise, which were uh, anchored on the river bottom and were just below the surface of the water and absolutely lethal to the holes of uh, unsuspecting warships and transports. So the two forts and the uh, hidden underwater obstacles were uh, supplemented by a, uh, you know, this is real defense in depth, by a uh, Pennsylvania Navy flotilla uh, made up of row galleys, uh, uh, gunboats, and they really had terrific names like uh, Tormentor, uh, Porcupine, Hornet, Viper, and such. And then fire ships, uh, uh, which were also, uh, you know, greatly feared and respected by the Royal Navy. They were appropriately dubbed uh, Etna, you know, Comet, Volcano, Vesuvius, and other, other such names. So the, the American flotilla made it really difficult for the Royal Navy to get work parties out to even begin to attempt to remove the underwater obstacles. And that was tough and arduous duty, even under the best of circumstances. So the, the irony for the American side in the, uh, in the geography and the defensive scheme was that the British Army uh, unexpectedly landed at Head of Elk on the Chesapeake uh, on August 25th, 1777, and it moved overland through Delaware and Pennsylvania rather than being uh, transported uh, up the Delaware uh, River. And uh, General Howe would then proceed to defeat Washington's army at Brandywine on September 11th, and uh, it occupied Philadelphia uh, uh, unopposed on September 23. But the irony for the British was that they were therefore in possession of one of you know, their primary objective, but they couldn't adequately provision their army and this uh, remaining sizable population of loyalists and neutrals via a very hazardous, difficult overland route uh, from their naval moorings at Chester, Pennsylvania, and that was about 20 miles to the south. So the problem they, they had, the British had, was that the calendar was inexorably working against them uh, because of the danger that the river would inevitably begin to, begin to freeze at some point, uh, that you know, deprivations would set in and uh, escalate. Uh, the prices in Philadelphia uh, started to skyrocket for provisions and that Washington uh, would re uh, begin to receive meaningful reinforcements from the North, from General Gates, after uh, Burgoyne surrendered on October 17. I'm not sure the British uh, uh, really uh, uh, fully appreciated the, uh, uh, the animosity that uh, Gates held for Washington and uh, the lack of cooperation. What did the British hope to achieve by occupying the city of Philadelphia? There were unintended consequences, but the, uh, uh, at the outset, the British aims were both political and military, and the uh, political objective was just obviously the seizure of the capital of the rebellion, uh, the seat of the Continental Congress, uh, the largest city in America, population I think was around 30,000, uh, it was a key mercantile hub, and they assumed that there would be a uh, devastating blow to patriot morale. 
Uh, but the Continental Congress and other revolutionary uh, agitators and kingpins uh, camped at the approach of the uh, Crown's forces. And uh, it was demonstrated to the British uh, that the occupation of no one population center or even plural center, since the British, of course, were already holding New York City, in and of itself would prove to be decisive. But the British strategy was two-pronged, and on the military side, the objective was that Washington could be lured into a uh, hoped-for you know, open-field set-piece battle, uh, and the British expected to be able to crush the Continental Army in such an engagement. And this came uh, uh, very close to happening at Brandywine, and that was indisputably a, a clear British victory, but it wasn't a decisive triumph. You know, Washington's uh, uh, defeated forces withdrew under the cover of a violent thunderstorm, uh, and uh, uh, they abandoned Philadelphia. They didn't uh, set up a close defense of the city, and they were aided in this by uh, a lackluster pursuit by uh, General Howe. And you know that's not the first time that it occurred. Uh, uh, it occurred during the campaign in New York and the. Uh, pursued across uh, New Jersey in 1776, and uh, how has uh, come under fire uh, over the years uh, as uh, being a little bit too sympathetic uh, uh, to the Patriot cause, hoping to give them a, a sound drubbing and bring them to their senses and make concessions. Uh, so Washington's army uh, remained in the field. Could you describe the American response to the occupation? The uh, American response was, uh, was threefold. Uh, first of all, uh, they launched a uh, surprise attack on October 4 uh, at Germantown on a portion of the British Army where it was quartered uh, just to the north of Philadelphia. Uh, and that attack might have succeeded had it not been planned in what was probably an overly complex manner uh, and it, uh, had it been conducted under somewhat better weather conditions. Uh, it uh, uh, launched in a thick fog, which caused more confusion to the attackers than to the defenders. And uh, there was also a, a British uh, unit's uh, tenacious, uh, almost you could call it Alamo-style defense of a mansion in Germantown called the Chew House. And Washington's attack should have simply ignored it and circumvented it, but uh, did not. Uh, Secondly, uh, as I mentioned, the Americans, to a significant extent, were successfully disrupting the, that stream of supplies headed uh, overland uh, 20 miles to Philadelphia from Chester uh, down to the south. And uh, third, uh, with the aid of uh, you know, uh, some uh, real expertise and uh, concerted efforts by some foreign engineers, including uh, Kosciuszko from Poland and Duplessis and Fleury from France. Uh, the Americans frantically tried to beef up the defenses of both Fort uh, Mercer and Fort Mifflin. And they used their row galleys and a floating battery as well to uh, harass the British batteries being built on the Pennsylvania side of the Delaware. Talk about Britain's attempt to take Fort Mifflin. Well, uh, the British were working uh, uh, feverishly, uh, but in fits and starts uh, in uh, horrible weather on uh, batteries on two islands on the Pennsylvania side, right adjacent to and opposite Fort Mifflin, 
Uh, and they had a, a very capable uh, chief engineer in charge uh, by the name of Captain John Montresor. And uh, ironically, uh, as a bit of a sideline, uh, it was Montresor uh, who had drawn up the initial plans for Fort Mudd before it became Fort Mifflin for the uh, Pennsylvania Provincial Assembly uh, back in 1771, prior to the rebellion. And uh, the assembly uh, uh, stiffed Montresor on uh, his requested reimbursement for various expenses. And he had to be, have taken a considerable uh, delight in exacting his revenge. Uh, his, uh, uh, his battery building eventually succeeded under these very poor conditions. The British guns kept, the platforms kept sinking into mud and muck and marshland. Uh, uh, but he managed to uh, put together three batteries comprising of 14 or 15 uh, cannons, uh, howitzers, and mortars. And over the course of about a month, starting in mid-October, they started to put down uh, an increasing fire on Fort Mifflin. And there might have been as many as a thousand projectiles a day uh, uh, by the uh, uh, apogee of the siege uh, being fired just by these uh, 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 three sets of shore batteries. Uh, then on October 22, 23, while the batteries were still under construction, uh, General William Howe and uh, Admiral Sir Richard Howe, uh, his uh, brother, launched a combined attack, and, and that just turned out to be an abject uh complete disaster. The uh, Hessians had crossed the Delaware. Everybody thinks of the Americans crossing the Delaware, but in this case, the Hessians did it. And they uh, made an overland assault on Fort Mercer. And that assault was repulsed with a great loss to the attackers who uh, were uh, insufficiently equipped with uh, scaling ladders and artillery and other uh, things they needed to conduct a, a, a proper reduction of the fort. Uh, and the, uh, uh, their commanding officer, Colonel Von Dunop, was killed. Uh, then Fort Mifflin uh, uh, withstood simultaneous bombardment from uh, Royal Navy ships and from those shore batteries that were in place. And at, at first, uh, the, the British would get wise to this, but at first the fuses were, uh, 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 were cut of the right length and they, they, the shells, exploding shells, were, uh, were getting buried in the mud of uh, Mifflin and the projectiles, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the round shot was, uh, was probably not aimed as well as it would be later to uh, reduce the parapets and the uh, embrasures of the fort. And then finally, to uh, cap it all off, uh, the Royal Navy uh, 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 in that day's and the next day's actions lost uh, a 64-gun ship, uh, the Augusta. And I think uh, that ship was the largest one it would lose in American waters during the entire Revolutionary War. And the Augusta ran aground and then just spectacularly blew up. It uh, sent up a giant mushroom cloud, and the explosion could be heard uh, many miles away. And they also lost uh, a smaller one of their warships, the Merlin, to a, uh, uh, to a similar fate. How does the fort ultimately fall? Well, there was a, uh, a narrow, uh, shallow channel uh, between uh, Mud Island, where Mifflin is situated, and the two adjacent islands on the Pennsylvania side, Province and Carpenters, and those are the two islands from once the uh, Royal Artillery batteries were firing under Montresor. 
and neither the shallow, uh, the shallow channel nor the, uh, any of the three islands exist as such today. Uh, but the British uh, convert, uh, uh, converted very cleverly. Uh, they cut down an East Indiaman uh, transport, uh, which for some reason, I don't know, uh, was uh, originally called the Empress of Russia. And they made it into a, a shallow draft ship, very shallow draft, uh, that could navigate the, uh, uh, the channel. Uh, they renamed it Vigilant. And they, uh, with some effort, maneuvered it into the channel, and they got in behind it another smaller converted shallow draft ship uh, named Fury. And uh, Vigilant had 16 guns all in alignment on one side. And it got in so close to the uh, besieged fort that the uh, Vigilant's Marines and the tops and the rigging were able to direct small arms fire and hurled grenades from above down onto the uh, beleaguered and battered garrison. And on November 18, there were only about 40 or so defenders uh, left from a garrison that at peak might have numbered maybe 400. You know, uh, defenders were getting uh, convoyed in and out from the New Jersey side by the Pennsylvania Navy. Uh, but those uh, remaining defenders were evacuated across the Delaware uh, and uh, over to New Jersey. And, the, uh, and Fort Mifflin had, uh, had simply been flattened, uh, not just by Montresor's land batteries and by the uh, two shallow drafts, Vigilant and Fury, but also from several other uh, uh, sizable Royal Navy warships that were firing on it from uh, longer range. And my own rough estimate is that, uh, that at some point there were at least 100 guns of the Royal Navy and Royal Artillery uh, that were brought to bear on Mifflin. Uh, and I think that uh, may, be, uh, 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 may be in competition for uh, the greatest cannonade in North America, at least up to, uh, uh, up to the Battle of Yorktown. What did the fall of Fort Mifflin mean to the overall war effort for the Continental Army at the time? Well, uh, uh, for the, uh, before we, we reach the American war effort, uh, if, uh, I'd like to sort of speak to the, uh, what it meant for the British war effort. Uh, uh, the fall of Mifflin may have completely saved the, uh, the British war effort. Uh, there's very strong evidence that the occupation of Philadelphia might have had to have been uh, cut short and abandoned uh, you know, very soon after the city had initially fallen, that the Americans' defenses had just held out a little bit longer you know, due to these dire victualing uh, provisioning problems and uh, worsening weather conditions on the Delaware River. Uh, it, uh, you know, one can imagine that uh, if the British Army uh, had been able even to get itself back to New York City from Philadelphia in one piece, either by crossing New Jersey or by reboarding transport ships and going by water down the Delaware uh, River uh, and uh, uh, over the Atlantic, uh, the political consequences of a fiasco like that, when you couple them with Burgoyne's surrender, and uh, French belligerence uh, might have meant uh, Yorktown taking place uh, four years uh, earlier. But to answer your question, for the Americans, uh, I'd say it was another demonstration of uh, resilience, uh, determination. And it was a source of great pride uh, uh, from the examples, uh, based on the examples that the uh, brave defenders of uh, Mercer and Mifflin had uh, exhibited. And it was a particular point of uh, pride and of honor that the uh, last group of defenders of uh, Fort Mifflin, who were under uh, a major uh, Simeon Thayer, 
uh, technically had not surrendered the outpost, but they had uh, simply abandoned it uh, and they had left its uh, unique uh, red, white, and blue striped flag uh, without stars uh, still flying overhead uh, as a uh, as a as a final sign of uh, resistance. And uh, if you visit Fort Mifflin today, they have an oversized. Uh, well, it's not. It's actually I think smaller than the original one, but it's still a, a huge size. Uh, of this uh, striped uh, Mifflin flag uh, flying over the fort, but uh, in you know, in summary, for the Americans, though, I would quote uh, Sir Winston Churchill after Dunkirk: "Wars uh, are not won by evacuations." Fort Mifflin will have a life after the American Revolution. Could you give us a quick rundown of that? Yeah, uh, very briefly. Uh, uh, there's uh, a visible section of the original granite wall that dates back to uh, the revolution and still remains as part of the uh, brick foundation of one uh, limited section of the uh, fort uh, facing out towards the Delaware. Uh, but uh, Fort Mifflin, uh, the original, as I mentioned, was essentially just obliterated over the course of the five-week siege and bombardment. And uh, Admiral Howe's secretary, uh, uh, by the name of Ambrose Searle, uh, stepped ashore on Mud Island about a week after uh, the American abandonment. And he wrote, uh, quote, nothing surely was ever so torn and riven by cannonballs. A more dismal picture of ruin can scarce be conceived. Uh, and uh, underscoring the point I made earlier, uh, uh, Searle also noted that it was being said all around that if the fort had not been taken, uh, the British could not have been supported much longer in Philadelphia. Uh, but starting in the mid-1790s, a new Fort Mifflin was built on Mud Island, and it was uh, initially under the supervision of Pierre L'Enfant, the uh, uh, noted planner of, uh, of course, of Washington, D.C. And it became a, you know, a significant part of uh, America's uh, you know, sophisticated 19th century uh, riverine and coastal defense system. Uh, you know, Fort Mifflin would be a, you become a major installation, and it's what you see when you uh, when you visit today, with uh, casements, uh, officers' quarters, barracks, uh, sally ports. Uh, there's an os- uh, an arsenal, uh, uh, a hospital, uh, uh, a foundry, and most of those are uh, on view and uh, can be visited today. Uh, the fort would not see any further military action, uh, but it was used to house prisoners during the Civil War. And uh, it was also uh, 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 it also served as a munitions storage facility during both of the world wars, and I believe it was also uh, an emplacement for uh, an, an aircraft battery uh, during World War II. Then, in uh, 1962, the uh, uh, U.S. Army deeded it over to the city of Philadelphia, and it's now a uh, national historic landmark. But when you go there, the uh, island geography of these uh, uh, adjacent islands close into the uh, Pennsylvania side of the Delaware, uh, that's all disappeared. Uh, uh, Mud Province and Carpenter's Islands, again, the latter two being where the British batteries were positioned, it's all been subsumed into the same landmass that they used to expand the Philadelphia National Airport. So if you go to Fort Mifflin today, uh, uh, an additional source of uh, uh, entertainment will be a uh, uh, very close-up viewing of uh, low-level incoming airliners with their uh, landing gear uh, down locked. Uh, so the British bombardment has been uh, replaced by the uh, drone of aircraft. 
What does this story reveal to us about the greater history of the American Revolutionary Era? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, in some, I would say that the uh, the very determined defense of Mifflin and of Mercer uh, uh, were indicative of the uh, uh, of the grit, you know, the sacrificial determination and the inventiveness of America's patriots. Uh, uh, there's a lot of creativity going on in this defense, uh, and uh, even in uh, ultimate but uh, temporary defeat. Uh, and you had uh, really asymmetrical warfare going on at this point as well. Uh, and th- those attributes were just sufficient enough uh, to be able to overcome a very uh, 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 malevolent subtext of uh, serious internal mistrust and discordant rivalries amongst many of the American uh, officer corps. And, you know, that's a subject that falls outside the scope of this particular podcast. But it was very much in evidence uh, throughout the siege. Uh, you know, put succinctly, there were considerable tensions and feuding that involved the commandants of Mifflin. Uh, in, in, uh, it was between the Pennsylvania Navy and everyone else, including the, uh, a small contingent of the Continental Navy. And it was even going on amongst the commanders of the New Jersey militia on the opposite bank. And of course, you know, mistrust and rivalries and feuds and disobedience of orders and outright treason at high level would uh, in part mark the experience of the Continental Army for a good part of the remainder of the war. But I I would emphasize it was the steadfastness and the fortitude of Mifflin's and Mercer's garrisons that helped set the stage for the Continental Army's subsequent steadfast endurance of the uh, miseries of Valley Forge. Uh, and the uh, metamorphosis uh, of the Continental Army uh, 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 during that miserable winter. While the, uh, the British were, of course, you know, far from finished and the uh, revolution was far from won, uh, the, uh, you know, General Howe, uh, nevertheless, he had to know as he gave up his command and returned to England and faced a uh, very hostile parliamentary inquiry that the crown uh, was now up against a far more serious and challenging entrenched existence in North America than it had ever bargained for. And uh, you could say the handwriting was appearing on the wall. Rand Moranti, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks again. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.